You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really, really glad that you're here with us. And uh, now let me ask, how many of you are parents? Can I ask that? Oh, wow. Overwhelming. Very good. These are my people. Uh, Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand for this, but I want you to think about it if you would. And that is if you have what I like to refer to as a worst parenting moment. And now my wife and I have this saying every once in a while when we do something, we just say, hey, we're not winning any parenting awards this week. And uh, which I feel like I say that way more. But uh, but anyway, so I, but I remember my worst parenting moment. I, I have many to choose from, but the one that I would say that I, I remember most vividly happened about nine years ago. Uh, we were at Hollywood Studios at Disney World, and my son Xander was three. My daughter Mia was seven, and Livy was maybe, she was less than a year old at the time. And so we had done all of our fast passes for the day, and Xander wanted to go on another ride. So I said, yeah, that sounds good. Livy uh, was asleep, and then Mia was tired. She just wanted to stay with her mom. So Xander and I, I said, Zan, we'll go on the great movie ride. There's no, there's no line to get on it. Now, Disney have made many good changes to their parks over the last few years. Getting rid of the great movie ride was one of their errors. That was a fantastic ride that should not have been taken down. Their worst error was getting rid of Mr. Toad's wild ride, in the Magic Kingdom, if you remember that. That was a fantastic ride. Now it's Winnie the Pooh. In fact, um, I get asked to sign petitions and all that. I, I have only signed one petition in my entire life, and it was to keep Mr. Toad's Wild Ride from being closed. That was the only petition I've ever signed. Anyway, so, and, and it was, it, Mr. Toad's is awesome. You would get into a car, Mr. Toad was the driver, you'd have these near collisions, and then at the end of the ride, you'd hit a train and then end up in hell at the end of the ride, and then you're done. And uh, I've wanted to see if I can set it up in the parking lot here at Calvary. And uh, we'd be scaring the literal hell out of people every week, leading them to Jesus in the parking lot. And uh, so that's, these are all future goals that I have. So anyway, but back to the great movie ride. It is, I, 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 it's one of my favorite was one of my favorites. And uh, so we get on the ride. And, you know, they do the whole thing, and they're taking you through all the different genres, the musicals, westerns, mobster films. And then you get to the sci-fi genre. You make the turn, it gets a little colder, darker. And then uh, and, and th- there's, I couldn't believe that there was this one part that I forgot about. And that's what, you know, if you remember, the narrator would say, you are with Sigourney Weaver on the spaceship Nostromo. And something has gone wrong. Someone from the crew has vanished. And then they say, somewhere within the ship, a terrifying creature is waiting to take its next victim. And at that moment, if you remember from the ceiling, the alien lowers down. I had totally forgotten that that took place. Well, my three-year-old son took notice, and he started screaming and crying and I'm holding on to him, this poor kid. He's terrified by the alien, which is what it's trying to do. And people are looking at me like I am the worst parent in the world. The lady who was next to me was like, look, giving me this look, like what else do you do for your children? Buy them cigarettes and beer? I mean, it was rough. And uh, so we get out of there as soon as possible. 
And man, I, I must have apologized to Xander a thousand times that weekend because had I remembered the alien, I never would have taken him. And see, this is the thing, right? Because we all recognize that there are rides for adults and there are rides that are geared towards kids. By the way, the same thing's true here at Calvary. There are environments that are geared towards adults and there are environments that are geared towards children and geared towards youth so that everybody learns at their level. But because we know this, right? We understand this, that our, right, your level of maturity, the level of maturity of the person that you're speaking with, the level of relationship that you have with the person that you are speaking with always determines the level and the depth of the truth that you can share with them. And that doesn't mean that you're necessarily holding out on them, but it means that you have wisdom to know what you can share and what things should be reserved for people that have a deeper relationship with the person. And once again, our ability to exercise this level of wisdom will give us tremendous influence in life. And it'll settle a lot of conflict many times before it even happens. And, and that's really what Paul is going to get uh, to the core of when he talks, uh, shares with Timothy in our message today. So if you're not aware, we are in the sixth message of a series that we've been calling Old School. Now, just to give you a little bit of, of background, um, we were calling it Old School. Uh, it's we're going through the book of 1 Timothy, which is a letter in the New Testament written by Paul to Timothy, who was Paul's um, son in the faith, his protege. And Paul had sent Timothy, this young guy, about 30 years old, to pastor a church in Ephesus, which was the second largest city in the Roman Empire outside of Rome. Now, this was a very diverse city. It was a diverse city socially. It was a diverse city ethnically. It was a diverse city religiously. And while the culture was very confused and constantly changing about what was, you know, true, right, and good, Paul's message was pretty old school. It, he was sharing these simple, unchanging truths that are like latitude and longitude in our lives. We can uh, chart the course of our lives with them. And so what he's going to encourage Timothy to do in this book is to fight the good fight, because as Christians, we don't fight like other people do, right? We don't sling mud. We don't get personal. We don't make everyone who doesn't agree with us, uh, you know, our enemy, but because that's not the Jesus way, what we do as Christians, we've been saying this every week, is that we love the people that we disagree with. We stand for what's true, but we show them that it's right by how we live and, of course, the way in which we answer. And that's really at the heart of what we're going to talk about in our time together is that he's going to help Timothy frame truth based on who he's talking to. Because, once again, there's certain approaches that don't work with everyone, right? We, we all recognize that. And so, but our goal can't be, we're just going to say what we want, how we want, when we want, uh, because once again, that's not going to win the argument, and that's not even our goal. The goal isn't to just win the argument. The goal is always to win the relationship so that there's opportunity for more dialogue. And so once again, if you interact with people and you have conflict, and everybody does at times, then we need to know how to diffuse some of the conflict when it starts, sometimes even before it starts. And this is so huge, especially when there's moments of correction, when there's moments when we're like, yeah, I don't think we see eye to eye on this issue. We've got to be able to have the conversation without destroying the relationship. And listen, that takes wisdom. It takes some patience. It takes some grace that we have with our words. So we're going to start, and you're going to see what I mean, as we start in chapter 5, of 1 Timothy, we'll start in verse 1. Here's what we read. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all 
purity. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things we're going to talk about when it comes to conflict. And the first is this, and that is let love be your motivation. Now, it sounds a little bit odd that we say you've got to treat different people in different ways, but it's something that all of us do, right? Most of you lifted your hands and said that you were parents, and you love your children the same, but you don't treat them all the same. Why? Because they're different people who need to be approached in different ways. That's just how we are as, as, as human beings. I have three kids, and I deal with them totally in different ways, even if I'm asking them to do the same thing. My son Xander is 12 years old, and he is a typical alpha male. That is, you give him a command, and he, like, if I just tell, I walk into his room, like, Xander, this room is a disaster, clean it. You got it, Dad, no problem. That's it. No more conversation is necessary than just that. Like, you're asking me to do it, I'm going to do it, it's done. My daughter Mia is my oldest, she's 14, she's a lot like me, we communicate well. And so now I don't, I can't walk in there and just say, this room's a disaster. She'd be like, how rude are you? How dare you? No, but instead what I do is I'll say, Mia, you know, if someone walks in here, they're going to trip and fall. And she's like, you know, you're right. It's a safety hazard. And if I speak to Mia, uh, like, of, like there's a potential injury that could happen, she'd be like, you know what? Let me get on that. I don't want anyone to get hurt. And I'm like, all right, here we go. So my daughter, Livy is nine. Totally different breed of cat. Um, because if I were to walk into her room and be like, Livy, this room's a disaster. Clean it up. She would cry for three days and be mad at me and not talk to me. Like, I, don't, I can't have that. So instead, what you do is I start by building the relationship. So I'll walk in like, hey, mama, what's going on? How is school? That bad, huh? Okay. And, uh, and then I'll just, you know, ask her about her day. Ask her how she's doing. How you feeling? What'd you have for lunch? Then I walk into Xander's room. I grab an acoustic guitar and we start strumming some chords, right? And then we just start, you know, we'll play a couple Taylor Swift songs. You know, the one about her breaking up with a guy. Which song is that? All of them. And, uh, and so we play a couple songs, right? And then they're never getting back together. And so we're done with that. And then I'll say, I'll say, Livy, you know, I, I, I saw, as we've been sharing here, I've, I've noticed that your room is a little bit messy. And uh, can, can you help me? with a big project? Oh yeah, dad, I can help. What do you need? I'm saying, would you be able to just clean up like the toys and, you know, whatever other items? I think there's a propane tank in here. And uh, if we can just kind of clean up the stuff that's on, oh dad, that would be my pleasure. All right. Last chord ringing out, you know, and then we're, and then we're done, right? And, th- and that's that. So it's like three, three kids with the same parents, but totally different approach to get the same result. This is the issue that Paul is talking about with Timothy. Timothy is a younger guy. He's probably about 30 years old. And Paul is explaining to him, this is how you got to talk to people uh, or even deal with conflict. And he mentions four types of people. He says, older men, younger women, uh, younger men, older women, younger women, and that covers just about everybody. And then he says, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to rebuke an older man. Now that word, there's a different word for rebuke that simply means to correct. And that's not the word that's used here. It's a word that's only used here in the Greek language in, in the New Testament. And it refers to striking someone verbally. I mean, it is a very aggressive 
tone. It's a very aggressive posture. It's a very aggressive attitude. And Paul says this, that that is not the attitude that a younger man should have with an older man. Now listen, is that because the older man is always right? No, not at all. But once again, what we're talking about here, we're not talking about winning the argument. We're talking about winning the relationship. And so when a younger man approaches someone who is older, if they will respect the older man that they're approaching, the the older man, listen, appreciating that, and he says, listen, just respect him as you would a father. There is a much more likely scenario that the older man will hear the correction and or agree with you. Now listen, this past Thursday, I turned 48 years old. All right? I appreciate that. I appreciate that. People are like, what's it like to be 48? I mean, it's, it's like whatever your age is, except everything hurts. It's basically like that. And so, but sometimes, you know, a younger guy will come up and, and uh, come to my office or catch me after a service and say, hey, I have a question. How do, why do we do things like this at Calvary or not do this? And I don't have any question. I don't have any problem with that. Um, what I do have an issue with is when, especially when someone's younger is very disrespectful because what it shows me is that they have no care for me as a person. They just want to like get their licks in and then just like tell their friends, oh, you know, I told somebody off or whatever. And that's, but once again, it's just, it's not a way to win the argument. It's not a way to win the relationship. And, and see, once again, if a younger guy will, will approach me with the respect of a father, because a lot, I'm, I'm at that place in life where there's a lot of people here that I'm like old enough to be their dad. Um, you know, if I had started at 14 or whatever, but it's still, it's still possible. <laughs> but listen, and once again, what, and, and this isn't something that I should say, but they should readily understand. And that is 20 years ago when they were in kindergarten, learning to write their name, I was already pastoring this church. And so once again, that's just something they need to understand. And that doesn't mean that I'm always right. It doesn't mean I'm always right just because I'm older, but being right isn't the goal. Winning the relationship is the goal. And if a younger guy who wants to be influential with an older person, here's what you got to do. Talk to that, that older man uh, like he's a father. And you know what will happen? Something wonderful will happen. If you talk to an older man like a father, he will talk to you like a son. And that matters. Here's the thing that I've learned. Listen, so many young guys that I talked to, they didn't have a great dad. Some of them didn't have a dad at all. That was really a part of their life. And more than anything, young men need an older man who will speak into their life like a father. And a young man, listen, who seeks to, uh, who sees, finds that will enrich his life immensely. But that begins by approaching an older man like a father and young men like brothers. Why is that? Why brothers? Because brothers might fight and brothers might argue, but they never walk away from each other because the bond is always deeper than the disagreement. And listen, if we want a culture of strong men who will pursue a woman that they care for and work hard to win her love, who will live honorably and model the person of Jesus and what they say and do, then they need a couple of things. They need a strong church community. They need an older man, a father that will speak into their life, and they need brothers. Now, ideally, that's your dad, but if he isn't around, then it's a godly man who will speak into your life and speaks to you like a father speaks to his son. Listen, Lifeway, now, admittedly, this research is about five years old, 
but Lifeway Research Group did a study in 2016 that if a man grows up without a dad in his home, there is a 2% chance that he will become a Christian. 2%. If he grows up with a dad in the home who attends church sometimes, he's not even that committed, he attends church occasionally, there is a 50% chance that that young man will become a Christian. If he grows up in in a home where his dad is a regular churchgoer, I'm not even talking about like serving and leading. I'm just saying attending. There's a 75% chance that young man will become a Christian. Now, in case you didn't think that dads matter, let me give you another mind-blowing stat. If a child, and this is anywhere from zero to 17, if the child is the first person in the home to become a Christian, there is a 3.5% probability that the rest of the home will follow and become a Christian as well. If mom is the first person in the home to become a Christian, there is a 17% chance probability that everyone in the house will follow and become a Christian. If dad becomes a Christian first, there is a 93% probability that everyone in the household will follow. So here's what I'm telling you. Dad, you matter. You matter way more than you realize. And I'm sorry. Clap for that. And let me tell you something, I'm sorry that the culture that we lived in has called you toxic, but you know the reality is is that a toxic culture has no idea how to describe something healthy. And listen, the only thing they know how to do is destroy everything that they see. We need men to be men now more than ever because your sons need you. Your daughters need you, your wife needs you, your church needs you, and you know who else needs you? Other dads need you too, so they don't think they're the only ones and that they're crazy. Instead, listen, we live in a culture that is so mixed up that it calls good evil, it calls evil good. And listen, not only is it not right, it's not even sustainable. That we have a culture that is literally devouring itself uh, because of this. That's why we need godly men more than ever. Well, Paul goes on, he says this, In verse 3, he says, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she, who is really a widow and left alone, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure or indulgence is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And if you pause there and give me your attention, second thing I want to tell you, if love is our motivation, then care needs to be our responsibility. That's number two. Now, this is an interesting section because it's not something that we deal with a great deal in 2021 in the way that Paul is describing it here with widows. Now, understand what was happening culturally. And that is that women in this culture had very little by way of rights, and widows had even less rights because they had no husband or children to be their advocate, and culturally she had no power, she had no position, and no representation to bring to bear on the world. And typically in the first century, uh, widows were very poor because they had no one in their lives to assist them with basic necessities, and so many of them just lived destitute. But because the church had limited resources, now they've got to make some decisions. So Paul tells Timothy to help widows that are really widows. That is those who are totally left alone. 
That's why he says in verse 5, he says that if any of them have children or grandchildren, they should be the ones who take care of their mom or their grandma, that it's an opportunity for them to repay mom or grandma for all the good that they did growing up. And then the key is in verse 8 when he says, and if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, why is that? Is because even unbelievers care for their families without being commanded to. And they don't see it as someone else's responsibility. Now, here's the, here's the other piece to this, is that your family caring for you should not be your retirement plan. Like, you know, I raised four kids, let them deal with me. You know, like that just, now remember, this was a world without social security. It's a world without 401k contributions. And so there was literally no support for the person who was unable to work. And so while the command is for family to support and care for one another, another, the better scenario is because most of us are going to have the privilege of getting older. We need to realize that retirement shouldn't take us by surprise. And so we should, it's something we can plan for so that we're not a burden to our family. Now, this would be the perfect moment for me to pitch some kind of retirement investment plan, right? I'd be like, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, hand out the brochures. And uh, some of you here for the first time, like, what the heck is going on here? I don't have one. I'm just messing around. But anyway, make some good choices in your life about that. And so, and by the way, every, I would say every, anytime I ever talk about something like investing for your future, I've always have somebody who comes up after the service like, Pastor Bob, you know what you really said really hit home for me. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. I'm like, do you do that for a living? He's like, how did you know? <laughs> it's almost like I've had this conversation before. And, uh, and so anyway, so, and then they're like, I want to present. The answer is no. And so anyway, so if you were planning on talking to me after, the answer is no. So anyway, you can save yourself a few minutes and you can just come by and wish me a happy birthday or something. Then we can have a nice conversation. But, but the following verses, and I won't read them from, from 9 to 15, where what Paul does is he just outlines uh, which widows should be provided for and those who are older than the age of 60. And the reason why he says that is those who are younger are more than likely going to get remarried. And so what he, what he says in that is, what I don't want is for them to come under the care of the church and then fall in love and be like, hey, I want to get married, but now I feel bad. And so like, if you want to get remarried, then do it and do it without any feelings of guilt or condemnation. Just you know, live your life and, and do what's right. But see, once again, caring for widows is not something the church deals with too much in 2021. But a similar issue has arisen where there's family members that we think should be cared for by the church. And I see that happen so often with youth, where parents have sometimes thought that it is solely the church's responsibility to instill a spiritual foundation in their kids. And my friends, that is just not the case. It is a parent's responsibility to instill a spiritual foundation and spiritual disciplines in their kids' lives. What the church does is we come alongside and we want to augment what's already been taught. We want to reinforce what's already been taught. And we want to come alongside and help if some issue arises. But once again, in previous generations, um, we thought that that was like a parent's job for, for most things. I mean, think about it. It wasn't that long ago, historically, right, when all marriages were arranged. That was a parent's job, like finding a spouse for your children. And I used to think that arranged marriage, I used to think that was completely absurd. And then I had three kids. And now I'm like, that is pure genius. And uh, because I don't think that a 20-year-old should be deciding for themselves who they're going to marry. Have you seen the majors that they pick in college? These are the kids that we're giving live ammo to? Um, I, I mean... 
I'm telling you, you talk to kids, talk, talk to a 20 year old. So what are you going to get? What are you going to school for? Like, oh, I'm going to get a master's degree in Renaissance art. Like, really? Pray tell, what can we do with a master's degree in Renaissance art? You know what they can't do, which is what you would expect? Paint Renaissance art. They never even lift a brush in that class. And so, no, 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 we just appreciate it. And they can't even appreciate it because most art is pretentious and terrible. Um, and, and by the way, most of us think that, we just don't want to admit it. Because we think that makes us unsophisticated. No, it's bad. Like, oh, what about Picasso? He stinks. All right? He draws people with both eyes on one side of their head. That's not how people look. No, but Bob, that's how he sees the world. Okay. He's seeing it wrong. Someone who loves him should buy him a pair of glasses and be like, oh, snap. I was seeing you all messed up. Now I'm going to draw it different. And so, but listen, you know, the, the, you know what got me thinking about this is that um, I, I think it was last week I was reading this article that a, Pica- a lost Picasso painting, did you read about this? A lost Picasso painting was found in Maine in someone's closet. So someone had passed away and the family are going through it and they're like, hey, this is terrible art. It looks like a Picasso. And uh, it turns out it was sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you know what? It stinks because he's not that good. But you know what? I was in Target the other day, right? And I saw this painting and I stopped and I'm like, oh snap. And I told my kids, I'm like, guys, check this out. This is a great artist. And they're like, it's just a bowl of fruit. And I'm like, it's not just a bowl of fruit. It looks exactly like a bowl of fruit. And that man has a true gift to paint reality. And, uh, and you know what? Art was selling for 15 bucks. It was a steal. And so my point is this. Get a useful degree, all right? Because there isn't much versatility in that Renaissance art degree. Do you know, I start, see, I just go down the rabbit hole on certain things. Last night I was researching, and I'm like, how many art museums are there? Not a lot. There's only a couple in Florida. And that includes Young at Art, the Children's Museum, and Davy. I threw that one in just to kind of beef up the numbers. And so they're not exactly the Starbucks of the museum game. And so, and then the, I, I like this one. Like, so what can you do with that degree? Well, you know, I could teach Renaissance art to people that want to get that degree. I'm like, my friend, let me tell you something. And when I take off my glasses, you know it gets serious. Is that when I take off my glasses... And I put this up, now it's deep thought. All right, but no. Here's the thing. If the only thing you can do with your degree is teach other people who have been suckered into getting that degree as well, you, my friend, have gotten involved in a pyramid scheme. All right? So here's my point. If you can't be trusted to pick a good major, I don't know if you should be trusted to pick your spouse. I think other people should be part of that committee decision. Because I'm telling you is that I see that people just aren't asking good questions. Like, oh, he's cute. He's cute. You know what's cute? Good credit. That's cute. Oh, he's funny. Yeah, you know what's not funny? A criminal record. Has this kid been in the clink? That's what I want to know. Like, oh, he's so nice. Of course he's nice. Maybe he's high. But listen, when that drug test comes back, we will know everything. And... So, (laughs) the point being, parents, it is our responsibility as parents 
to invest in our kids' spiritual foundation and growth. Listen, we have our kids for 168 hours a week. The church gets them for one. And that's if you showed up. Some people are at home heating up a bagel while they watch this. We got them for zero. And so the point is this, is that if we have them for the rest, and listen, we've got to work together. Parents need to instill biblical values and, and, and a spiritual foundation for their kids, and the church comes in and reinforces it and creates an environment where there's other students, other kids at their level that are going in the same direction as well. All right, Paul goes on, verse 17, he says this. He says, let the elders who rule or lead well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little water, a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. If you pause there and give me your attention. Last thing, and then we're done. And that is, let honor be your pattern. There's some powerful things that Paul is saying here um, when it comes to church and church life in general. Remember, this whole section has been Paul explaining to a pastor how to treat those in the church. This section is about how the church is supposed to treat the pastor. And the first he talks about when he says that those who lead well are counted worthy of double honor. Um, he's talking about compensation, that they should be compensated fairly. That phrase double honor is where the English word honorarium comes from, from this passage. And then he quotes two sources to prove his point. The first is in Deuteronomy 24, when he says, you don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And it refers to animals that are plowing a field and that an ox can eat the grain as he plows. And what Paul is saying is, is that even if an animal can be sustained when he's working hard, so too a man of God who's serving God's people. The second part is a quote from the Lord Jesus, a laborer is worthy of his wages. That's a quote from Luke's gospel, chapter 10, when Jesus sends out um, all the disciples as missionaries into the uh, neighboring cities. And he says, hey, no, 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 don't take any of your stuff. You're going to see that all of your needs are provided for because a laborer is worthy of his wages. And the point that Paul is making is if we want pastors who are worth listening to and worth following and, and are going to be there when, there's a, when a need arises in our lives, then pastors need a livable wage. And that means a congregation needs to be obedient in giving so the church can afford quality pastors and everything else that's needed for leading and teaching and serving well. The second thing that he talks about is he talks about accusations. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but have you noticed that people talk smack? Have you noticed that in life in general? It unfortunately even happens in church. And what Paul's issue here is that even though people, people talk those accusations should never be accepted as gospel. 
until there are two or three people who are willing to go on the record and talk about what they saw or experienced. That's why Paul says when he says don't receive, that phrase literally means don't even entertain it. We, it's not even like, don't even listen to it. We're not even talking about it if it's true. I'm not even hearing it until there's two or three people that are like, no, this is what we saw, this is what we experienced, and we want to tell our story. And here's why this matters. Because churches don't usually get destroyed from without. Instead, enemies from within corrode it with ungodly behavior. And listen, this isn't, com- this isn't something, by the way, that Paul thought up out of nowhere. This was the code of conduct for all citizens in Israel in Deuteronomy 17 on any legal matter. And he pulls that, this idea of there's going to be no verdict cast except there be two or three witnesses. And so Paul is saying, if that's true for God's people in general, then certainly it's true for leaders and pastors. And by the way, every, if you read the Bible, every godly leader, including Jesus was accused of something. But once again, And this is hard for us in our culture because the minute that an accusation is made, everyone believes that it's true. And then later on, people then print the retraction, but it doesn't get the headline that uh, the accusation that gets made. And so what Paul does is, listen, just because someone makes an accusation doesn't mean that it's true. Paul gives parameters. And by the way, this doesn't mean that pastors are flawless. The reason why he sets this up is so that when there are, are real problems, they can be handled. And so it creates a way for problems to be corrected when they arise. And so let me give you an example. So the other night I get home from church and my oldest daughter, Mia, says, Dad, those pretzilla pretzels that you opened went stale. Now, I don't know if you know, are you familiar with pretzilla? Man, I love America so much. Um, I'm telling you, pretzilla, you know how sometimes, I love soft pretzels, as of course all of you do as well because you know the difference between right and wrong. And so... But I love soft pretzels, but what I, I always feel bad when I get a soft pretzel because the thing's like the size of my head. And so, but there's this company called Pretzilla, and they sell it at Publix. They make pretzels that are the, the, like these pretzel balls that are like the size of a ping pong ball. So you can have like a pretzel or two. Fine, three. Um, but you can have a couple pretzels without like feeling bad about your life choices. And so I just love them. But this, this pretzel company, they have a fatal flaw. And that is the packaging is terrible. You open it, and then the, the resealing adhesive doesn't work. So once you open it, you expose the pretzels to the elements. You have 72 hours at best before those pretzels are gone for good. And that's why I wish that those pretzels, when you opened it, it came with like this Jack Bauer 24, like, doot, doot, doot. And you just really found a sense of, you better eat them! You know, just like, you really felt a sense of urgency well, anyway, my daughter accused me of a heinous crime in my house, which was opening the package of pretzilla and letting them go to waste. So she's like, you opened them, and now they're still. I'm like, I did not. And I'm like, Mia, don't blame me for things I didn't do. And she's like, Dad, you were standing. So then she gets up. She walks over to this other spot on the counter. She's like, you were standing right here when you tore off the packaging. And by the way, you're right. The packaging is trash. And so, but then you got saran wrap and you were like, you were going to, you said you were going to create this airtight uh, situation. And then you said, Mia, this is what I do. I solve problems. <laughs> and then I thought to myself and I was like, dang, that does sound like something I'd say, but I didn't say it. And I'm like, Mia, whatever. And then Xander comes down the stairs and Mia's like, Xander, did dad open the package of pretzels? He's like, yeah, I remember he put the, the saran wrap on it. 
And then he said, this is what I do. I solve problems. And I'm like, dude, I don't even sound like that. And so my daughter Livy then hears all the commotion and she comes downstairs. She's like, what's going on? And Mia asks her, hey, did dad open the pretzels that are now stale? And, and she's like, dad, how could you let that happen? And I'm like, I didn't do it. She said, you put the saran wrap that said you would fix it. And then you were like, something, something, you solve problems. And I'm like, and I said to myself, all three of these kids have lost their minds. I can't believe it. And so, no, listen, the, the, the evidence was overwhelming. I was wrong. And I'm like, guys, I, I'm sorry. And then I ate a couple of stale pretzels and walked away. And I learned a valuable lesson. And that's really the moral of the story. And so... All right, but then Paul gives a couple of final encouragements. One is ministerial. He says, don't lay hands on people. And laying hands is always the symbol of um, acknowledging God's call on someone. It was laying hands, praying, conferring on them God's call. And he's like, don't do that quickly. Give that some time. Let people's character be proven. The second one was more personal where he says, drink a little wine instead of just drinking water. Now, remember, in that culture, water was impure. It carried diseases. Some was really bad and, and carried things like dysentery. In, in fact, and, and by the way, it's terrible that in some parts of the world, that is still the case. The, just the water that people drink is killing them. Uh, when I was in Jordan, um, about 20 years ago, we did an, a trip to Israel, and we were in Israel for 12 days, and we were in Jordan for two days. And so we were in Jordan. This was like the following morning of the second day. And this guy comes down to breakfast, and his whole eye is swollen. And I'm like, dude, what happened to you? And he's like, man, I felt fine when I woke up. I went in the shower, and I got out of the shower. My eye started swelling up. And it, and it turns out he had like some back, there was some bacteria in the water that had gotten in, um, in his eye, and his eyes had swollen up big. And I'm listening to the story, and I have this, uh, he's telling me the story. I'm about to drink some water. And I was like, sir, I'll have a Coke. And uh, I drank Coke the entire time that I was there because... No bacteria can survive the process of making a Coca-Cola. No human can survive that process. That's why the stuff will kill you. But I knew at that time that that was the right choice. And uh, so anyway, I said sorry to the guy, but preserved myself uh, through the soda. I didn't know what to do. I, I thought about pouring some soda in his eye. I thought that might help. And, uh, but he wasn't open to that, unfortunately. And so now, here, here's the real, I'm messing around, but here's the real point is that, uh, although that story didn't really happen, but um, Paul's advice to use a little wine would safeguard Timothy's health from the effects of this polluted water. And this is very in keeping with what were typical medicinal practices in the ancient world. And by the way, when he says wine, this is a drink that was one part wine and three parts water. So this isn't a verse you were like, it's like, hey, Timothy, man, it's five o'clock somewhere, dude. That, that's, not, that's not what that verse means. So just FYI. And, so, and, and by the way, but you know what it does mean? Now, here's what you got to understand about the Apostle Paul. Is that the Apostle Paul, if you read the book of Acts... There were amazing miracles that took place through the Apostle Paul's ministry. And yet, when it comes to this issue, he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to pray for you to be healed when I get there. Instead, what he says is, if you take a little bit of wine, you're going to feel a lot better. That there is nothing wrong, listen, with taking something medicinal if you have an ailment or illness. And, and, and listen, unfortunately, there are well-meaning Christians who... Just feel, no, 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 I'm going to trust God. And taking any kind of medicine or something like that or going to see a doctor is not trusting God. 
No, my friend, listen. Medical advancement is a gift from God. And it is not the enemy of faith, and it's certainly not a lack of faith by taking it. And some of us have been praying for God to do a healing, and sometimes medical advancement becomes the answer to that prayer that that we've been praying. Now, does God heal miraculously? Of course. And there are times when that happens. And there are other times that sometimes God heals naturally and sometimes uh, supernaturally, and sometimes God heals naturally as well. And we thank God for both and all of it. Now, this does create a little bit of a problem. Because if you remember, in chapter 3, Paul says that an elder, a leader, a pastor should not be given to wine. And yet he tells Timothy to take a little bit of wine to deal with his stomach issues. That it's like, hey, I know you're drinking water and Hawaiian punch, but you got to augment that a little bit. Now, I believe that's why the last two verses are there at the end of this, where he says, some men's sins are clearly evident. You see what people are doing wrong, and you can clearly see it. But for other people, you can't see it. They talk a good game, but then you find out later the stuff that like, oh man, I can't believe. How did we not realize that? And we've all had those moments. And then he says that for other people, their good works are clearly evident. But then there's other people that have been living a life of integrity and you realize later that it's like, man, I didn't realize how much integrity he was living with until some time went on and we were able to see it. And what Paul is talking about, and this is the important thing for us to recognize, and that is that time is always the great revealer of things. That's what I love about pastoring the same church for the last 21 years. Right? I was 26 when I started this church. You've seen my life if you've been here. And you've seen my marriage and you've seen my kids. Nothing has been hidden. And just like in your life, listen, there might be things in, that people don't like about what you do or don't do or what they wish was different. But over the course of time, everything is revealed. Because some people talk a really good game, but it's all a show. And when it's a show, it never lasts. Time always reveals it. Time is always the great revealer of truth. And listen, here's the reality. No one is getting away with anything. Now, it might seem like they are in the moment or they might have a good run for a while, but listen, nobody's getting away with anything. Everything always does and always will come out. And this is, by the way, if you're not aware, a great promise. Because if you've ever felt misunderstood or feel like you've been overlooked, then listen, be hopeful that it's not over. Time is a great revealer of things and will reveal what you're doing right. And the Bible says this, that God will lift you up in due time. And I remember feeling like that. I remember it was 1997 and I was 23 years old. I was in my last semester of college getting my theology degree and I was serving as a teaching assistant at the college and just helping out with some random stuff there and grading papers and answering questions and whatever. And the person who ran the college was a really nice guy, and we're still friends to this day, but if we're speaking frankly, I mean, he was not doing a very good job. And a lot of his responsibilities were falling on me, and we were in a separate building from the rest of the church, and I thought, and I remember being young and thinking, um, nobody sees, nobody sees what I'm doing. No, no, this is all this that's, nobody sees what's happening. Nobody sees what I'm doing. But see, here's the thing that I learned that time is the great revealer of things. And at the very, towards the end, I was a few weeks away from graduation and, um, I get a phone call from a pastor who had been one of my professors and he had moved and he's like, Hey, I want you to come and, um, 
be the worship leader at our church. And if you don't know, I've been a musician for most of my life. And, um, and I'm like, great, where's, your, where's the church? He said, well, we started a church in Maui. And I was like, say, say, say that again. Did you say Missouri? And, uh, or as, if you've ever been there, then it's misery. And, uh, and so and he's like, no, we're, we're in Maui in Hawaii, and we'd love for you to come and, and be the worship leader. I'm like, he's like, you know, pray about it and let me know. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to pray about that. So I hung up, and I, told my, I went home, and I told my wife, and I'm like, I got a phone call from this pastor, you know, and um, we are, uh, he invited me to come on staff at his church in Maui, so let's pack our bags while we're praying. And, um, and I was so excited. I'm moving to Hawaii. There are other places you could suffer for Jesus uh, than in Hawaii, and I'm like, well, that's where we're going. And so anyway, uh, and it was like, so clear, and I felt called to teach, and it's like, I'm not really going to teach there, and I had to call this guy and tell him no, and uh, I was just, I was, uh, anyway, so I said no. A few weeks after that, um, I get another call from a pastor here locally, and uh, he's like, hey man, we heard you're graduating, and we've heard a lot of good things about you, and we want to offer you this job as a youth pastor at our church, and, um, and I'm like, okay, and uh, he said, so, you know, pray about it. And so I'm like, man, um, that's pretty cool. I thought that'd be awesome. And so, um, you know, it wasn't in Maui, but it was in Hollywood. And that's, you know, it's not bad. So the worst places. And so, and then I just felt we prayed and that wasn't it either. And I, I called the guy and turned it down. And, and I thought, I remember hanging up on the phone with, with that guy. And I thought I had destroyed my future. Like this, this was, I didn't get one opportunity. I got two. And I turned them both down. And I thought this was it. Well, four months later, I finish, graduate, all that. I get a call at 7 o'clock in the morning. And when you're 23, you typically don't wake up. You know, I was, now I wake up at the crack of dawn. Back then I woke up at the crack of noon. And, uh, and so, <laughs> so I, uh, I get a call from, from my pastor at the church. And he says, hey, Bob. And I'm like, hey, how are you? And he says, hey, we've been watching you. Now, I don't know how you feel when someone opens a conversation with like, hey, we've been watching you. And uh, I, it, what I had was abject terror. Um, and he and I hadn't really talked that much. And so uh, I, was, I was afraid. I felt like there's a story that's told about uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who wrote uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, that he, played, he was a big practical joker and he played this practical joke on his friends uh, where he wrote them this telegram and he said, all is discovered, flee at once. He sent this to four of his friends. Within 24 hours, three of them had left the country. And so that's just the power of a guilty conscience. So anyway, he's like, hey, Bob, we've been watching you. And I'm like, I need a passport to Mexico. And, uh, and so anyway, he says, um, we know you've turned down other opportunities. And we know all that you've been doing at the college. And we want to make a change. And I heard that. And I heard they're going to fire me from a job that I'm doing for free at the school. Like, they're like, we see what you're doing at the school, and we need you to stop. Like, that's what I thought they were saying to me. Uh, so, and then they said, hey, we've been, uh, we've been waiting for you to graduate, and uh, we've, been, we've been watching to see how you adjust to being married. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 60 days, I'm in. So I'm good now. I know exactly how this works. And um, they're like, we want you to take over the college. And uh, I'm like, you want the inmates to run the asylum? And... Uh, and so, and, and I said to him, like, 
Pastor, I don't know that you realize this, but I'm only 23. And they said, yeah, we know that, and it doesn't matter. We're convinced that you're the guy. And everything changed in one day. And here's my, but, but it wasn't really one day, was it? It was months. But time is this great revealer that God has a way of using time to bring out motives, to show not if, if it's bad, the evil that people are doing, and if it's good, the great things that people are doing. But it's also the opportunity for God to not just reveal, but God to prepare. So listen, if you feel misunderstood, I've been there. And here's what I can tell you. You keep doing what you're supposed to do. You keep being faithful, and I can tell you this. Your phone call is coming. If you'll serve like God is watching, because he is. Because nothing that we do is going to be lost. Nothing that we do for him is going to fall through the cracks. He sees it all, and he's going to reward it all. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you that you love us and that you don't miss any of it. You see all of it. And you are, according to your word, a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So I pray that you would do this incredible work in each and every one of us. For those of us who are trying to do what's right because we're waiting for our phone call, I pray that it would come at the right moment so that it would be a true blessing in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.